0: 4 verse 2, and in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing uh, for those of Israel who have escaped. Now, You notice that phrase there, the branch of the Lord, in that day, referring to another day beyond this time period, in this sense, not a day literally, but in the sense of the day of, the Bible speaks about, as we've seen already, the day of the Lord, referring to a time period, the Lord's day, the idea is the day of the Lord, it's no longer the day of man any longer. It's now the day of the Lord. God interrupts human history and he tells man, your day is over. The day of you rebelling against me, the day of you corrupting the earth with sin, that day, this is now the day of the Lord, where he interrupts and takes over in human history. So referring to this day, a time period down the road in the future, where he speaks about the branch of the Lord. Now that phrase there, the branch of the Lord, uh, is a messianic title. We'll see it in chapter 11, it's spoken of in Jeremiah chapter 23. In Ezekiel's prophecy as well, it's a term, one of the descriptive terms given to describe Messiah and a description, no doubt, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and a very fitting term. Many different metaphors are used to refer to Jesus. One of them is this idea of the branch of Yahweh, the branch of the Lord, Jehovah God, and what a fitting description. That's exactly to a degree who Jesus was. What is a branch? A branch is an extension, right? It's an extension of the source, or of the the, the vine, or whatever it may be, of the trunk of a tree, and that's exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is the extension of God himself as he reaches out to humanity. He is the expression, the extension of the invisible God to reveal to us who God is, what God is like, as Christ came the first time, he was God in the flesh and is the branch of the Lord. He, in a sense, branched out of the eternal realm and allowed us to see God firsthand in human flesh dwelling among us. And so we know this is a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ, a messianic word about him. And in that day, this day, he says, the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And you could tell it's a time of great prosperity once again, the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who've escaped. So we go from the prior verses where things are very dark. It's all dismal. Things are a mess, right? I mean, we looked at there in chapters three and four, some really dark, dismal things that were going on, the sin of the people at that time. And now all of a sudden, he contrasts that with the beauty of the Lord, the beauty of our Lord Jesus in that day when he returns in all of his power and in all of his glory and his reigning there in Jerusalem, as chapter 2 described for us, we saw some of it there, as the Bible describes, where the, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And remember, we saw that all nations will be flowing to Jerusalem seeking the lord wanting to pray to him he'll be there teaching expounding the word of god how amazing that's going to be right when he is there and so beautiful is the lord in that day that his glory is radiating and people are drawn to him they're attracted to him and i love this description of our lord jesus this great change that's going to be ushered in during the time of the kingdom age on this earth where all of a sudden now there is something very beautiful on the earth and all the ugliness is gone. All the misery has disappeared, right? We saw in chapter 2 where it told us that they'll beat their swords in the plowshares. They won't learn about war anymore. So all military technology, all the budgets for defense systems to destroy people and to bring carnage and and, and wars, all of that will be shifted over into a peaceful existence when the Prince of Peace is ruling, and instead it will be used for agriculture and to help people and to provide for people and to bless people. Again, the reason is because then the rightful king is finally reigning. And once Jesus is reigning, everything becomes different. He himself is beautiful and glorious, and he will bring about a beautiful and a glorious environment on the earth. People will be appreciating how wonderful Jesus is, how beautiful the Lord is. Isn't that going to be an incredible time? Imagine, as a Christian right now, he's beautiful to you and me, right? He's glorious to us in our own personal life. He's amazing to us. But to so many, the person that we think is so beautiful and the Savior and the Lord who we think is so glorious and wonderful, so many people think very horrible, disparaging thoughts about him. He's mocked. He's, in a sense, you know, looked upon as, as part of the problem in culture, these Christ followers, these conservative Christians. But in that day, everybody's going to see how beautiful Jesus is. Everybody's gonna see how wonderful he is and the fruit of the earth, it says, will be excellent and appealing. There'll be something very appealing at that time, the wonderful fruit of the reign of Christ because the presence and rulership of Jesus will bring great fruitfulness and prosperity to the earth because then things will operate on the earth the way they were supposed to. As there's a genuine theocracy going on and the Lord is truly reigning over that time. Interesting, he describes that time as for those of Israel as well, who have escaped. The idea is those who are entering into the kingdom age of the nation of Israel are those who had escaped, that is, they've escaped through the tribulation. As they go through the time of the tribulation, that seven-year period, the Bible refers to as the time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel 9 tells us it is a one, uh, one more seven-year period that, in a sense, the nation of Israel, by covenant, the 70th week of Daniel, they still owe God, if you would, one more seven-year period where God will uniquely be working among the nation of Israel, specifically, it will be one of the main purposes of that time, and they will suffer tremendous hardship, persecution, right? The Antichrist will turn against them and breathe out all of the venom of the devil's wrath against them. And he describes those from the nation of Israel being able to escape out of that time, as the preservation of the Lord helps them come out of that tribulation period, and then they get the privilege to enter into the glorious kingdom, having escaped through that time of the tribulation and the hardships we'll see in our chapters in Revelation, not too far off that we're heading into. Verse 3 goes on to say, "...and it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion, there in the area of Jerusalem, and remains, will be called holy." everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. So talk about a tremendous change. What we've been seeing in the prior chapters already is the spirit of God's been using Isaiah to indict the nation of Israel, the people of Judah and Jerusalem as well, in the southern kingdom of all of their sin and all of the evil things they were doing, their rebellion against God, and talk about God's ability to turn the events and to change a person's condition. He says that those who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy. That's the exact opposite. God will call them holy, wholesome, set-apart, clean, everyone who's recorded among the living in Jerusalem, and notice how they can go from being utterly sinful and filthy to being holy and wholesome and pure and clean. He says, verse 4, it happens when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Jerusalem. The Lord washing away the filth through the purging of the blood of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins, those once defiled will be purged washed of their filth. They'll be cleansed in the sight of the Lord, made holy and set apart to the Lord in their condition. But notice the way in this particular situation, that process of purging them from their defilement and giving them a holy condition and status. Notice the process that will transpire. It will be a process of undergoing a period of fiery judgment that they'll be experiencing upon their lives. He says, it will come to pass, verse 4, by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. In other words, they will be brought through, as we might often say, the refiner's fire. And it says they go through the refiner's fire and the experiences of very difficult, fiery trials. It's through that there will be a purging and a cleansing process that the Lord will bring the nation of Israel through in that time. And how wonderful how the Lord, in a more wonderful way in our lives, we understand from a New Testament perspective, many ways does the same thing in our lives as a refiner's fire, and as verse 4 describes, how he washes away the filth. Now, isn't it wonderful First John tells us the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin? And if we think about our lives, you think about your past, I think about my past, is it not true that when you came into a commitment with Christ and you embraced him as Savior and you trusted for him, now that's exactly what he did for us. He washed away the filth, the filth that was in your life, the filth that you sowed into your mind, the filth that became a part of the stains of guilt because of the wrong things that we had done in our lives and how he washes that away in like a refiner's fire He burns away all of the old things in our lives and gives us a brand new, holy, clean status before him. So by the spirit of burning, the Lord says he shall do this. Verse 5, Isaiah goes on, and then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion. Again, this is Jerusalem. And above her assemblies, a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory there will be a covering, Isaiah describes, and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat, that is to preserve them from the intense heat of the Mideastern sun and for a place of refuge and for a shelter from the storm and rain. So in some ways, Isaiah is describing here That in some way above the house of the Lord, which will be in existence, as we talked about, in the kingdom age when Christ is reigning, there will be some form of, the Bible describes it here in verses 5 and 6, some form of a covering, of some type of a glory covering, some type of a tangible indication of, of the glory and the presence, the weightiness of God's glory that will be covering the area of Jerusalem very similar, you can tell in the language, verse 5 and 6, is it not, to that cloud? Remember the glory cloud as they were journeying through the wilderness that was the manifest evidence of the presence of God and his glory being among them. And in a very similar way, as they were delivered out of Egypt and they journeyed through the wilderness and God brought them into the promised land, the promised life he intended for them, there was that glorious covering of the presence of the Lord that did much the same as what's being described here in the same way. Remember that covering in the days of Israel, it did the same thing. It provided relief. It, 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 in a sense, preserved them from the intense severity of the sun, the scorching sun by the day, the cloud did. And in the same way in the evening, that pillar of fire by night, it would serve the same purpose. It would help to keep them warm. It would also protect them at night, added to them some light to be able to operate and be directed by the Lord's guidance in their path. But it really functioned to provide relief to them. And I love the picture here because he depicts it in much the same way as they experienced the presence of the Lord in time past. In some way, there will be some form of this glorious cloud that's going to exist once again in that day. But I just love the imagery there because notice again, when Jesus is ruling and when the Lord is reigning, the results of that is a sense of safety and security for his people. There is no harm that was going to come to them at this time. They are now protected. They're preserved. And that's the picture here of this glory cow providing preservation and a place of refuge and shelter from the storm and the rain as the Lord shields his people by his very presence among them. Chapter five now goes on to transition and Isaiah goes from speaking prophecies to notice now he's not only a prophet, but apparently he's also a singer also a worship leader to some degree. The Spirit gives him a song because verse 1 of chapter 5 says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. So notice, Isaiah now is prompted by the Lord and he says, Let me, first and he's speaking of, let me sing to my well-beloved. Talking about the Lord calling the Lord his well-beloved, someone who he loves very greatly. And, And notice, he wants to sing, he says, to the Lord, to his beloved. Not just sing about the Lord, but he says, no, I want to sing a song to the Lord, but it's also, he says, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard, a vineyard that belongs to him. So he's going to sing a song to the Lord that, yes, is also about the Lord, but it's an expression that is stemming from what? His love for the Lord. It's a love song. And I think that when we think about worshiping the Lord and expressing song to the Lord as a form of worship, that should be the mindset that we hold in regards to why we would sing to the Lord why we should sing to the Lord. I mean, certainly he is worthy of our glory. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our honor. This Sunday we'll be in Revelation chapter four. We'll see in chapters four and five, the scenes around the eternal throne of God and the worship that's going on there, which is really good because someday you're gonna be there. So you, want to, you don't wanna look like a tourist when you get to heaven, okay? I want you to be able to say, I'm from Calvary Chapel. They taught us the whole Bible. Just follow me. I know what's gonna happen next year." I know the lyrics to the songs. We studied that book in the Bible, and you could be a, a tour guide, if you could, in seven. Instead of walking around like a confused tourist, you can, from day one, jump right into the worship and fully engage. But one of the things we'll see they're saying around the throne of God is, worthy, worthy, worthy of all glory and honor and power. So certainly he's worthy, and then we should give him our worship whether we ever feel like anything or not. But the heart attitude in our singing to the Lord should be this idea of singing to the one that we love. And that we're singing to him, the idea there is, you know, in the same way. Someone would, you know, sing a love song to someone, serenading someone. That's the idea there, that we want to express out of our love for the Lord— to tell him through the words that we use and the, the, the melody of the songs and the music. We want to tell him how we think about him, express our love to him, and sing a song about him. And notice he says this song that he received from the Lord, apparently, which was you what's know, a, a prophetic word here, it had a degree of melody. There must have been a harmony. Somehow he sang this. I'm not going to try, so don't get nervous. But he sang this song, and notice it was about the Lord. So it was a song that also, notice, was used to convey spiritual truth. And I think for those who select worship songs and lead worship songs, I think for those who've been gifted and maybe the Spirit of the Lord enables you to to write or to put together a worship song, that should be something that's taken into consideration that when the Lord gives you a song, it should be a song that conveys spiritual truths. And that speaks things about God and about his ways, about his nature, about what he's done. And again, that, that, that music can be a medium whereby God helps us to remember spiritual truths, to recall spiritual truths. I don't know about you. I, I hope there are times when we're singing worship songs, sometimes the phrases we're singing through or, or you know, the lines in them, how it resonates with maybe what was going on in my life this past week or what's going on in my heart right now personally And how wonderful it is to be able to connect spiritual truth in the midst of our worship and expression to the Lord. So this song is regarding the Lord's vineyard, his beloved, the Lord's vineyard that he is the owner of. Now, let me read from verse 1 down through verse 7 because it encapsulates what this song is actually about as he comes to the point at the end of verse 7. Then we'll go back and work our way through it. He goes on to say, verse 1, my well-beloved has a vineyard. On a very fruitful hill, he dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me, the Lord says, and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down, and I will lay it waste." and it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns, and I will also command the clouds, and they will rain no more on it. Verse 7, Isaiah answers the question. Again, the Scripture interprets Scripture so we don't have to speculate at times in the Word of God. The Holy Spirit tells us, for the vineyard, being described here, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, in this situation is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, he saw oppression. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So verse 7 tells us exactly what this vineyard or this parable is about here. It's a metaphor to describe the nation of Israel, the house of Israel, and interestingly enough, notice he also indicts, he says there there, and in the prior verses of above, not only the house of Israel, the nation, but then he almost, he kind of almost says if he adds into it for another element of emphasis, the men of Judah. It's almost as if God says, do you know who I hold accountable for the problems in a nation? The men. Because if things were happening according to the will and the way of the Lord, the men would be determining the condition of the nation in a right way, in a healthy way, if they had spiritual fortitude and spiritual backbone, and they were leading their individual households, and they were leading spiritually within the gathering of God's people, and they were providing leadership and strength among the nation to stand up for righteousness and to resist and oppose evil, the nation would be in a good condition, but the nation in its declining condition, God has no problem adding into his indictment Yes, this is about the nation, but he particularly adds in, and the men of Judah, the men. And I think it's just a good injunction and a good reminder to us to exhort us in regards to a reality of what happens in a parallel way in any nation as he begins to describe this vineyard of the Lord, which describes the nation. Look with me back up in our verses in verse 1 and 2. God's describing how Israel, the nation of Israel, he, he planted... Like a vineyard. And the very clear imagery here in our first few verses is how God blessed and planted the nation of Israel with so many advantages. I mean, He gave them an unmistakable amount of clear advantages spiritually and in so many different ways, a great amount of privilege and opportunity. He says, There, my well beloved has a vineyard, verse one, on a very fruitful hill. So God planted the vineyard and he planted the vineyard in the most fertile territory possible. Again, these are metaphors just describing. God says, I didn't take you to some barren place. I gave you the best possible chance to thrive spiritually. He, this this, you know, vineyard owner, he planted the vineyard on the most fruitful hill he could find. He found the best, most advantageous place to flourish spiritually where he planted his vineyard, and he also dug it up. He cleared out his stones, and if you know anything about the you know, nation of Israel, the, the land, the topography there, it is a land that is littered with stones. And so it is a lot of work to get agricultural success in that land because you got to be willing to put in the sweat equity to dig a lot of stones up to get all those stones out of the way. And and, and God says, I dug up all the stones. I took away the hindrances. I cleared all the things that would be obstacles. I worked hard to get all the obstacles out of your way to do everything I could to give you the best possible chance to thrive spiritually. And then he said, I I not only cleared all the stones, but I planted it with the choicest of vines. So God planted the absolute best of vines that he could think of that that existed. He built a tower in its midst. The towers would be established. They used the stones to build walls and to build towers. The towers were to, to look over the vineyard. So when harvest time came, if people tried to come in and steal the harvest or steal the fruit, people would be in a watchtower to see you know, a robber or a thief or an invading army to come in. And so he says, I, I, I built towers for this vineyard of mine. I put a wine press within it. They didn't even have to take the the grapes and and that which they gleaned from the vineyard and and, you know, unsafely carry it to another location and and do the wine pressing there. God says, I put a wine press right there. I made it as convenient as possible, as easy as possible, and made a wine press in it. Now, because the Lord, as this wonderful, you know vine uh, dresser and this wonderful you know vineyard owner did all these advantageous things to give privilege and opportunity that's why he says and i expected it big surprise to bring forth some really good grapes god says god says i gave everything possible and if we think of what god did for the nation of israel just in some simple capacities i mean think of all god gave to the nation of israel he gave to them the law he gave to them the prophets like towers, those who would watch over the people and who would speak forth warnings like Isaiah and like all the prophets through Israel's history, who could speak warning signs and convey things to caution the people and to to speak into their lives from a spiritual higher vantage point as God gave them messages to speak to the people. God gave them the priesthood. God gave them the sacrificial system And God gave to them so many advantageous things so that they could flourish and thrive spiritually. And because of that, God says, I did have an expectation. I expected good fruit to come out of the nation. I expected to see good fruit rightfully so, and that fruit belonged to him. He deserved it for all of his investment into the people. But instead, God says, when I looked for good fruit, all it brought forth and was bringing forth at this time historically was wild grapes. And notice, this is a problem even worse than being barren and unfruitful. God says the bigger problem, is not that they wasn't producing fruit. In this situation, God said it's producing toxic fruit, wild grapes. The idea there in the language is sour or poisonous grapes. They had polluted the things of the Lord. They had mingled together. Remember what God said in the first chapter? You know, your hands are filled with bloodshed and murder. You're killing people and, and living in, you know, sexual immorality and all these perverse ways, but yet you're still offering sacrifices and going through all the religious motions and living in just brazen hypocrisy. And God says, this disgusts me. What, what are you doing? And they had made the whole spiritual life so toxic and, and like wild grapes. And so he says, verse 3, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, he says, Between me and my vineyard, what more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done for it? Why then, verse 4, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? In other words, God says, let's, it's almost like he said back in chapter 1, let's reason together. God says, let's reason this out. What more could I have done to help you flourish spiritually? How could I possibly be to blame, God says justly in this situation, for your spiritual and moral failure. What didn't I do for you? What did I not provide for you and put at your disposal? And yet, you're trying to blame me, God says, for your condition and your situation and your circumstances nationally, when the reality is, the blame's all on you. I did everything possible to help you flourish and succeed spiritually. And you know, from a New Testament perspective, as Christians, though we are not the replacement of Israel, The Bible tells us as well in the New Testament that we have received from God everything that we need for life and godliness through his divine nature and spirit that's been given to us. Ephesians 1 says we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. We have the full canon of the word of God. We have a complete understanding of the gospel. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of us, living within us not just coming upon our lives from time to time as the nation of Israel would experience. We have way more advantage spiritually than even they had. And so it would be fair to say there is some degree of expectancy of good spiritual fruit God would expect from my life and your life as a Christian. And justly so. It is right for God to be able to have a degree of expectation in our life to see good fruit. Remember, Jesus said, I appointed you that you may go bear fruit and fruit that remains. So it is a great disappointment when God sees our life producing bad fruit, sour fruit, rotten fruit, when the reality is God's not to blame for that. There's nothing that God has left out and did not do for us. He's done a whole lot to give us the advantage and the opportunity to have a spiritually fruitful and prosperous life. And the blame is completely on us. And so in a sense, the Lord at times could charge me or perhaps indict you in the same way saying, what more could I have done for you? What what more could I have done? I've done so much for you. This is something on your end that you have to recognize. He says, I expected to find good fruit. And instead, sometimes the Lord finds sour grapes as he looks at our lives, perhaps from time to time. In verse five, he then warns them, saying to them his discipline and now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard the Lord says I will take away its hedge that it's protection and it shall be burned that is it will be exposed there won't be a barrier and a wall to protect it from the, the the fires that could rage from time to time I'll break down its wall and it shall be trampled down I'll lay it waste and it shall not be pruned or dug. So God would no longer tend the vineyard and you know get out the weeds and use the hoe and keep the land cultivated. He says, but there shall come upon it now briars and thorns, and I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. So God's discipline, God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remove my blessing. I'm going to pull back my preservation, my protective covering, and I'm going to allow you to struggle, and let's see how well you do, God says, a nation, without my involvement in your situation anymore. You didn't want my involvement. You didn't want my help. You didn't want to take advantage of my blessings and my protection and my preservation, so God says, okay, how about I just pull all that off, and let's see how well you do on your own, (laughs) and that is probably one of the worst things any nation wants is for God to basically say, you know what." You can keep on your money in God we trust, but God says, if you don't want anything to do with me, then I'll just step back. I'll just pull back and retract from you what I was doing previously, and I'll let you try doing things without me completely on your own and and see how well that works for you. And how the Lord can use that as a degree of judgment, where in a sense he just retracts his hand of blessing. He retracts his hand of protection and preservation, whether it's on a nation or upon a life. Boy, that is one of the worst things we ever want to experience. And the Lord here indicts Israel. Now, it seems verse eight and running through the remainder of our chapter, we now find these six woes, which I believe are basically just a description of this sour fruit, right? God says, I was looking for good fruit, but I only found these wild, sour grapes. The idea is conditions of sinfulness instead. And the Lord describes them now in these six woes that are pronounced against his people. The first woe described in verse eight, he says, woe to those who join house to house and add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. Now, The first woe that's pronounced against them is basically a description of how the people, the nation at that time, had been consumed by greed and covetousness. They were consumed by greed and covetousness for excess material prosperity. They were disregarding the general principle that God gave to them as a nation uniquely. Remember, Leviticus 25 describes it. Numbers chapter 36, other places where God said, the land is mine. And God allotted different territories and boundaries of the land to all the different tribes and the families. And at times they may fall into hardship. Maybe they didn't have a good harvest or a good crop for a year or two. And then maybe problems happen they fell into debt. And sometimes their land would have to be sold off to pay their debts and so forth. But God had always said, look, but that can never be done permanently. And even on the year of Jubilee, everything was to revert back to the people. And again, the reason why is because God wanted them in that situation nationally to realize that the land belonged to him. None of it was theirs anyway. Remember, when God brought them into the land, he said, I'm going to give you a land, right? He said, I'm going to give you a land. You didn't work for it. You didn't prepare the land. You didn't conquer the land. You didn't build the houses or build the cities. I'm going to take you and give you victories and battles in ways that are amazing and you're going to completely inherit the land. Inherit means it's a gift. And inheritance is something you get because somebody else worked really hard for, and they kindly left it and turned it over to you. And God says to them, it's going to be a faith inheritance. So God wanted them to have this understanding of who really the landowner was. And what God's indicting here is they had lost touch with these important spiritual realities. And what they were doing, he says, is woe. And the word woe means, you know, pay attention, judgment's coming, warning to you. To those, he says, who join house to house and field to field. In other words, what they were doing was they were selfishly in greediness. They were making land grabs. And they were accumulating houses upon houses and property upon property. And they were doing everything they could to basically just capitalize in their greediness on the misfortunes of those around them. Hey, that guy's in trouble. Great, let's buy his house at a cheap price. And in their greed and covetousness, again, don't read this and think, well, wait a minute, that's horrible. You mean you can't have more than one house? That's not what the point is here. What God's describing is a condition where their hearts had become so cultured in a selfish way by the world where they are greedily in covetousness just grabbing more and more and more and more for themselves. And rather than caring about spiritual things, what they're more concerned about is accumulating more material things. Hey, we need another house. We need another house we need some more land. And the people were being in a sense controlled by their material lusts and the misfortune of others. And God here indicts them for what they were doing and that he was going to judge them for it. Ultimately notice their greediness and their selfish pursuits of materialism, it would not result in fulfillment anyway. He says to them there in verse nine and 10, in my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, truly many houses shall be desolate great and beautiful ones without inhabitants. So all these fancy, nice houses they were inheriting, the nation was heading towards judgment, and they were going to get yanked out of the land, and the people of Babylon were going to take over all their houses, all their mansions, were going to be left for the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And God says, you're trying to gather all this stuff, and you're just going to lose it and be empty in the end. He says, verse 10, for 10 acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, which is around six gallons. Now understand, typically... A acre of land should yield a few hundred gallons. And here he says, well, I'll make sure one acre of land only yields about six gallons and a homer of seed shall only yield one ephah. So the picture there is the land drastically underproducing. And about one-tenth of what it should naturally produce, God would cause drastic reduction and instead of it performing the way it should. And you know, <laughs> I look at that and, and I think, if the Lord wants to get somebody's attention, you're going to grow your business. You're going to grow your portfolio. And God says, try it. Because God says, I can make anything underproduce real, real, real well. In the same way God can prosper us and make us flourish, if our heart is not in the right place and we do not have a right mindset and right heart attitude about wealth, about money, and a proper balance, God can very quickly say, you know what? I'll take that back. I'll make that underproduce. I'll yank that away from you because all you care about is all that. And God says, it's idolatry in your life. And so God here, in a sense, cautions them of this major problem of greediness and materialism, the prosperity that was driving them and how unhealthy it became in the nation. Verse 11, he says, and woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink, that is pursuing alcohol, who continue until night. Till wine inflames them, the harp and the strings and the tambourine and the flute and the wine are in their feasts, but they do not regard, nor as they don't care about the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of his hands. So the second woe God describes is this problem of the sin of self-indulgence. Self-indulgence, not only greediness and covetousness and materialism, but self-indulgence was a problem in the nation. Overindulgence, as you can see, verse 11 and 12 there, overindulgence in alcohol and pleasure. I mean, they got up and the first thing in the morning they were looking to do was to get a drink. And they said, you know what? Why we're at it? Let's just keep drinking and keep the party going, he says, all the way until nighttime, till the wine has us totally inflamed. So they love, the picture here is they love the alcohol, they loved the party life. They were consumed with seeking pleasure. Life was just a big party at this time, and they wanted to live in that way, and they were consumed with seeking after pleasure, but notice they had no regard of the importance of the work of the Lord. It was all about worldly pleasures, worldly enjoyments, and God says it seems that you are consumed by the things of the worldly pleasures. And you no longer have any consideration of the operation of what's the hand of the lord involved in what's god doing and the people instead were becoming very worldly in their pleasure seeking verse 13 he says therefore my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge again he's describing how ultimately as we've talked about God would bring the Assyrians to the north, conquer them. They threatened the southern kingdom. Ultimately, Babylon would come and conquer the southern kingdom of Judah, bring them into captivity. And God says, here they are living it up in pleasure, and they're oblivious. Eat, drink, and be merry was the nation's motto eat, drink, and be merry, have a good time, carouse, party, and they had no idea the nation was in drastic decline and was about to be conquered and taken into captivity. God says they have no knowledge. They knew about certain things, but they didn't have any knowledge of what mattered. They had no knowledge of the things of the Lord. Their honorable men have become famished. The multitude are dried up with thirst. Therefore, Sheol, the grave, the place of the dead, has enlarged itself, opened its mouth beyond measure, The glory of their multitude and their pomp, that is their thinking big of themselves. He who is jubilant shall descend into it. God pictures them kind of sinking down into the pit of the dead. People shall be brought down, God says, verse 15. Each man shall be humbled. The eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in his judgment. Boy, isn't that interesting? The Lord can even be exalted in his judgment. Even when he righteously judges, there's the exaltation of his greatness and his glory because it's a righteous judgment. And God, who is holy, shall be hallowed in righteousness, then the lambs shall feed in their pasture, and the waste places the fat ones' strangers shall eat. Our third woe in verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if a cart rope. So the third woe here describes kind of drawing here like the animal drawing the carts or pulling the sleds with ropes with the weight or the burden, working hard. And here the picture seems to be them being kind of, if you could say, overly connected to or overly attached to sinful living. They refuse to depart from their error. There's an attachment to different types of sins. And people are, in a sense, tied to sinful pursuits. They're, they're attached to sinful ways of living. There are things that the nation was doing wrong. People were engaged in this form of sin and that form of sin. And it wasn't just temporary mistakes, periodic failures. It was a thing where people were tied. They were in bondage. They were attached. They were chained, shackled, and they would not let go like a rope around their ankle attached to their sin. They just drug it with them wherever they went. And they just kept repeating the same cycles of sin again and again. The idea is kind of very brazenly. They would not cut the cords. They would refuse to depart from their sin. And you can tell they're brazen because look at verse 19. They say, the idea is they're speaking to God here. Let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. So the picture there is like taunting God. They're basically living in brazen sin and saying, well, if God's going to judge, then why hasn't he done it yet? Where's he at? And they're basically like provoking God to act in judgment. And they're basically, oh, you pompous, righteous people, you you keep saying God's going to judge us. We've been attached to this same sin, having a great time with it for a long time. Nothing's happened yet. Where's he at? How come he hasn't done anything like Peter describes in his epistle, how There'll be scoffers in the last day saying, you know, where is the coming of the Lord? And where is he in his judgment upon the earth? And kind of the same idea here. But it's a scary thing to be, in a sense, mocking and taunting the Lord, taunting God to judge. Scary, scary place and a scary condition of a human heart, but that's what sin does. It blinds people, and this is what it does: it makes people insane insane i'm just talking to someone recently about the reality of the effect that sin has on people's thinking literally how it just blinds people and it makes people irrational illogical to where they they do the most foolish insane things but that's the blinding effect of sin our fourth woe shows up in verse 20 woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So our fourth woe well we find here is basically a description, of those who call evil things now good. And those things that are good were then in the nation being referred to as now evil. So the picture there is blurring and twisting God's moral standards. Replacing God's value system with a human value system as more superior. Saying that human judgment on what is moral and right or wrong is correct and God's moral judgment is incorrect. Changing God's ideas for their ideas or we might simply say redefining morality. Calling what was good and always known to be good because God defined it and said it was good morally. Calling that now evil and that which God said was evil and was an abomination and wrong and unhealthy, calling what is evil now good and endorsing it and promoting it as something good, even though God said it's completely evil and completely redefining morality. Now, if there is anything from a parallel standpoint that is incredibly applicable if in a nation in decline and a nation coming under or already under the judgment of God that we can relate to in our country, it is certainly that woe right there. It is certainly that one. You know, I, I, you know, want to just share a a thing or two just to give you a a sampling of some of how I see this reality. Here's a a heading of an article from uh, Christian Post. Says this: Trans Biden official, Rachel Levine, who of course really isn't Rachel Levine. It's it's actually Richard Levine. Here was what was said. And again, if you don't know who Levine Levine's a biological male who previously went by the name Richard Levine before identifying as a female, was making remarks, it says, at a Friday interview recently on ABC Nightline in a segment called Identity Denied Trans in America. And here's what Richard Levine, who calls himself now Rachel Levine, who's been appointed to a position of the U.S. Health Department of Human Services as the Assistant Secretary, said, hormone drugs prevent kids from going through wrong puberty. In other words, this is the reason why they need hormone drugs in a prepubescent state is because it will prevent them from going through the wrong form of puberty that their body biologically and naturally would start to go through. And and here was the kind of the, the, the reasoning behind this kind of a thing here. Levine contends minors shouldn't wait until they're 18 to undergo gender transition procedures because some adolescents might be going through the wrong form of puberty. Insanity. Calling evil good and promoting that from a place of high authority now. You know, there was uh, some guidelines recently that came out. I don't know if you saw the CDC just recently issued some new guidance in regards to what they refer to as health equity considerations, which essentially describe how to inject social justice objectives now into uh, the hospital systems and healthcare and so forth. Uh, And that included this guidance from the CDC. An individual does not need to have given birth to breastfeed or to what they're now calling chestfeed. So what they're now doing is giving guidance and they have created a way where, again, if you're a normal person, you're thinking, what in the world is chest feeding? Well, in a simple way, it's basically injecting chemicals into a male's body who wants to identify as a female and wants the privilege to have the freedom to be able to nurse a child the same way God created a woman to nurse a child, a female to nurse a child. So chemicals are injected into the breasts of males who are mentally confused to create a secretion and a substance from the nipple area of a biological male which has chemicals infused into it and isn't even what normal breast milk is to then give that to an innocent baby because they selfishly want the experience of nursing an innocent child with no idea of what that's gonna cause of complications to babies. When they're suckling on a male's breast who wants to chest feed. This is is the nation that we're living in. Where now evil is being called good. Evil things are being, these are good things, and and this is progression, and these are, are and this is what, and then the same way, everything that's good now is being called called evil. My wife and I went and watched the Sound of Freedom movie, and, you know, I don't endorse movies from the pulpit very often. It was very difficult to watch, but it was a true story about exposing sex trafficking and, you know, some work that's been happening in regards to that. And just take a look in the media. This very good movie that has exposed something in a very healthy and appropriate way, all of the leftist media is basically condemning the thing and calling something that was a good quality movie blowing the horn and exposing something that is now one of the fastest growing criminal enterprises internationally, about to take over drugs. And they're saying, that's, that, that's an evil, horrible movie. It's all exaggeration. They're trying to create hysteria. That, that good thing, that is, that's evil. They shouldn't be doing that. They shouldn't be doing that. Insanity. But this is the picture, God says, calling good evil and evil good. Verse 21, let me get off my hobby horse and finish up here. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. That reverts back to our prior verse. And prudent in their own sight. So notice, here is a picture of this woe, is a spirit of arrogance among the people in the nation, believing they know what's right. They're wise in their own eyes. Nobody's going to tell them what's right or wrong. They know because it's all based on their feelings. It's based on their judgments. And so they're not gonna listen to anyone else. And look and see, this is the whole thing. this This isn't true tolerance anymore. The only voice that matters is the voice of those who want to be in control. True free speech is everybody gets a right to their opinion. If you wanna have your crazy idea, that's fine, but I'm entitled to my crazy Christian conservative biblical value opinion as well. That's true free speech and true tolerance. But instead, there's this idea that, you know, you try and bring up reasoning, or you try and speak to someone logically, and just, you know, they're not going to hear it. They don't even want to talk about it. And this is the idea here, this arrogance of being prudent in their own sight, wise in their own eyes. They don't want to listen to anybody. They don't want to listen to reasoning. That's a very arrogant and unhealthy, unteachable mindset that leads to what we saw in our prior verse, calling good evil and evil good, moral decline. Woe to men at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. Notice the second reference of the abusiveness of alcohol and substance abuse in a nation. And look what this was causing to happen. Verse 23, this woe, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. The sixth woe described there is the leaders in the nation ruling horribly. Because they're misled in their reasoning by their abuse of alcohol and they're perverting decisions for personal gain. Do you see what he describes? How the leaders were ruling in a very perverse way, corrupting justice. They're justifying wicked people. In other words, they're giving rights and entitlements to criminals for a bribe for personal gain and money. And then they turn right around and they take away justice from the person who's righteous and who's innocent. So let's do what we can to support the criminals because there's financial gain in that and we're being bribed and there's personal gain in doing such. And let's, let's give false justice and not give justice, take away justice from righteous and innocent people. Again, perverting the rulership of a nation, another image of a nation in great decline, these six woes. God says, verse 24, therefore, as the fire devours the stubble, and it does rather quickly, does it not? And the flame consumes the chaff. Doesn't take long for a flame to consume chaff. So their root will be as rottenness. The root of the nation was full of rottenness. And their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despise the word of the Holy One of Israel. So notice, What God indicts them generally of being guilty of in connection with these woes, they were guilty of rejecting God's written word. They rejected the law of the Lord. Because they had rejected the law of God's written word as a governing standard morally over them as a nation, that then led also to them, verse 24, despising the word of the Lord, that is the voice of the Lord when he spoke a timely word to convict men's hearts. So one, it was the rejection of the written revelation of the law of the Lord, which should be governing our lives as people morally. And then that then led to a complete disregard for whenever the word or the voice of the Lord was speaking to people, they were completely suppressing it and rejecting it. And this is what led to the downfall of the nation. That's what leads to the downfall of any nation. Therefore, verse 25, he concludes the chapter of the warning of the coming invasion. The anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. He stretched out his hand against them, stricken them, and the hills trembled. Their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the streets, all of the dead bodies from the invasion. For all of this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Now, we want God's hand stretched out to help. Not God's hand stretched out to judge. He will lift up a banner to the nations from afar and whistle for them from the end of the earth. Surely they shall come with speed swiftly. So again, notice God uses the nations as his instruments. The picture here is God whistling, calling the Assyrians, calling the Babylonians afterward to come in to be his tool of judgment. And when they came in, no one will be weary or stumble among them. None will slumber or sleep nor will the belt of their loins be loose, nor the strap of their sandals be broken, whose arrows are sharp and their bows bent. The idea is ready for war. Their horses' hooves will seem like flint, and their wheels will be like a whirlwind. Their roaring will be like a lion. They will roar like young lions. Yes, they will roar and lay hold of the prey. The idea is the fierceness of the foreign invaders, as the Assyrians came, conquered the north, they would greatly threaten Judah and Jerusalem, but God would mercifully intervene and give them a chance to repent, but they would refuse to repent, and then God would bring Babylon afterwards to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah, and that's what he describes at the end of verse 29. They will carry it away safely, and no one will deliver. No one would be able to stop the invasion and the fall of the nation. In that day, they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea, and if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened by the clouds. You know, we look at these verses, and one of the things that clearly sticks out to us is this, is God holds us accountable spiritually, and there's no way of getting around that. God holds us accountable spiritually, and God has expectations for us as his people, And the thing we should always be asking ourselves in regards to God's expectation of our life, how are we doing? God has expectations, He's put upon my life, to whom much is given, much shall be required. And because we know and we understand, God holds us accountable. God has expectancies of our lives, where we're at spiritually, what we know spiritually. And so, as God has expectations, the question I should always say is, Lord, how am I doing? How am I doing, Lord? What fruit are you seeing in my life? Because that is something that matters to the Lord individually, and we should pray for our nation because it is something, as we've been blessed as a nation in our own country, to experience many advantages and privileges from the Lord that we should really be considering nationally as well. Well, let's stand. Let's pray together.